has them. And after church, immediately after church, I need two men to slide this pulpit back because the kids will be practicing up here. There'll be no Sunday school for kids or adults. And for those of you who come early for our prayer time, we will be meeting at 10 o'clock in the normal places. And there's probably something I have forgotten, but just read the bulletin. Thanks, Andy. In your bulletin here, there, I have a scripture guide to the events of Holy Week. I've given this out for several years, and um, I think it's helpful, and I hope you do too. I want to draw your attention to it. Um, it's from the final days of Jesus by Andreas Kostenberger and Justin Taylor. What they've done here, and I've summarized it on the sheet, is to kind of give you a timeline of the week we're going through. Today, we call it Palm Sunday. And if you look on the first page, it's essentially Jesus enters into Jerusalem, and you remember they cried out, Hosanna. That is, God save us. God save us now. Flipping over to the end of the week, uh, go to Friday, and here you have Jesus betrayed and then crucified, tried in a fake trial, and then crucified. Back to the front side. This week, that's thinking through this week and the days ahead, um, entering Jerusalem, all praise, and then Monday, he curses the fig tree, cleanses the temple. Tuesday, uh, they, he teaches a lesson from that cursing and predicts the future. Wednesday, here you have him teaching and the Sanhedrin plotting to kill him. And Thursday is a big day with a lot going on, much of which we remember, and particularly the farewell discourse, and of course the betrayal, crucifixion on Friday, and his burial. And then Saturday, a, uh, a guard is placed in his tomb. And then Sunday is the day of his resurrection. That's next week. It's Easter Sunday, or we call it here, Resurrection Sunday. And so I would encourage you to uh, uh, look at this, perhaps read the text, along some of these passages of Scripture on your own, uh, maybe in a devotion with your family. Uh, but think through each day what was going on to work up to uh, the next week, which is Resurrection Sunday. It's, it'll be a glorious day. And it'll be even more glorious if you engage your heart to think on these things. I believe Wednesday, our prayer time, and we'll do that online. Uh, I'm going through how to pray and, and talking about things like that. But I think this week we'll stop and review this in greater detail uh, for you there. So if you want to be a part of that, that'll be on our uh, Wednesday uh, time. Uh, and that'll begin at 7 o'clock on Wednesday. And, of course, we'll be praying beginning at 6.30. Well, let's go ahead and prepare your heart to worship the Lord. If you notice here, we're going to sing here in just a minute, 68, Holy, 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 and then, O oh, Worship the King. What a great way to begin uh, a service to think about Christ and who he is. I'll read a text of scripture before Blake comes to read. 
But I want to give you a, m uh, to lead us in song, I meant to say, uh, but uh, I want to give you a moment to prepare your heart to worship Christ today. Privately, I'll allow you to pray, confess your sin, ask for God to illuminate your heart, to help you hear and heed the very words of Christ that are for you today. So take a moment privately where you're at, and then I'll pray for us corporately. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we have gathered together today, this Lord's Day, in really a commemoration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which makes every day possible. I pray for myself and I pray for your people that indeed you will give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, and hearts to respond to the very truth that you have for us. I pray that you would be uh, bless your people uh, with great truth from Christ, that it will be fitting for whatever circumstance they might be going through even this day. For those that are struggling with various things in their life, I pray that they would know, though they might walk in the darkest valleys, that indeed you are there with them always, even until the end of the age. I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be knit and bound to you, that the love of Christ granted to us, he poured literally into our hearts, will cause us to respond in great praise to you and great encouragement one to another. We're thankful beyond an example that is given to us in Jesus Christ, but also the sending of the Spirit to dwell in the hearts of the believers. And I pray for each of us that we be increasingly controlled by the Holy Spirit, that it might affect how we think, how we act, and how we respond. I pray ultimately that the glory of your grace would be made known. I pray for the little ones in particular as they hear and see and witness what's going on. I pray this seed of your word would be planted deep within their soul, that they would respond in great faith and continue beyond this day in the days to come. May Christ be exalted and may our hearts be knit to him and may we ever more say, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus, come even this day. I pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, we get an opportunity now to sing one of my favorite hymns. You can look it up as Blake comes to lead. Holy, 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 hymn number 68. Most of us, when we think of this, we might think of um, the passage in Isaiah where Isaiah does get a vision of God and he sees the angels responding in talking about how magnificent God is. That's the idea, holy. Um, but at the end of the Bible as well, here's another vision, a vision by John. And he sees this one who is on the throne, our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's the same response in Revelation chapter 4. Holy, 
holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Are you looking forward to his soon appearing? Let's sing it out, 68 together, holy, holy, holy. Let's all stand together and turn to number 68. We'll sing all four verses. Verse 2, women only. Verse 3, men only. Number 68, holy, holy, holy. coming of the Lord Jesus into Jerusalem. It was all foretold in Zechariah 9.9, which reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal 
of a donkey. Let's sing, Oh, Worship the King, number 24. morning church I do have a um, a couple of uh, updates for you this morning from our anchored in truth um, pastors and missionaries um, I do want to make an announcement that you can find in your bulletin as well um, this week and probably the next couple weeks maybe throughout the rest of this month here um, we're taking up a special offering. Uh, if you designate your offering to go towards missions, uh, it will go to a specific fund uh, in Anchored in Truth that is helping to support um, the pastor in Poland. Uh, it's Pastor Max. I can't say his last name, so Pastor Max in Poland. They have uh, several uh, folks there that have been displaced, uh, that have fled their home in Ukraine and are uh, seeking help and, and, uh, and assistance uh, there in Poland. I'll mention some more about that in a minute. But for the next couple weeks here, if you, uh, if you designate either in the line of the check or on the envelope, if you give cash, uh, whatever your method is, if you designate it for missions, it will be a specific fund to help those folks there. So if that's been on your heart, if you've been looking for a way to help with that situation there, uh, there's an opportunity. Uh, first, I want to uh, give you an update from uh, Pastor uh, Kevin Millard uh, in Brazil. We've spoke with him before um, in our summer uh, mission uh, Zoom meetings and things. Uh, he is in Brazil, and uh, 
His update is brief, but there's plenty of uh, items to pray about there, so I'll get to that real quick. Uh, Pastor Kevin says, uh, Greetings from Brazil. It is hard to believe we're already well into the month of April. It seems like yesterday we were welcoming in the new year, but time just keeps rolling along. As it does, we must keep our hearts and mind focused on things above. And remember, our pur purpose in life, which is to grow in grace, enjoy the fellowship with the Father, and live for His glory. Are we doing that? Are we helping others to do that? Paul wrote to Timothy, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. May the Lord find us faithful in investing in eternal things, in the lives of others, and laying our treasures in heaven. The, the ministry at Grace Baptist Mission is growing and going as Brazil opens back up and as church activities are getting underway. A number of visitors and prospective new members have been attending in recent weeks. This Sunday, April 10th, will be the Mission Church's sixth anniversary service, complete with a potluck dinner. A four-day church-wide Easter retreat is scheduled for next week. We will also be resuming discipleship training classes this month and making plans for a vacation Bible school in late July, Lord willing. Other children's ministries geared towards students from a local school are also in the works, along with a small AIT encounter for pastors and leaders. In November, the Mission Church is planning to organize as an autonomous church. Please be praying for our services, retreat, and other ministry events in the coming days. We make plans, but trust the Lord to direct our steps according to His will. In an update on family things, our daughter Deborah has been accepted to enroll for a one-year Bible course at Reformation Bible College in Sanford, Florida, which begins in August. We have applied for scholarship, financial aid funds, uh, which we hope will be available. At this point, we really have no idea what the cost will be, but if it is the Lord's will, He will open the doors. The first step was to be accepted. So far, so good. Pray with us as we look to the Lord concerning His will in Deborah's life. A special thanks to our supporters for your continued faithfulness in giving to the Lord's work here in Brazil. The Lord is building His church, and we are blessed to be a part of what He is doing. A blessed Easter celebration to you. So that was uh, Pastor Millard in Brazil. We'll keep them in mind as they have uh, different uh, um, events and things coming up, and uh, pray for him and his family as well. And I want to mention to you quickly again, uh, Pastor Max in Poland. Um, my understanding at this point, there are four families, so I don't know how many actual people that in includes, but four different families that have uh, fled a real heartbreaking situation uh, in Ukraine. They are they're refugees. They, they leave everything. They're, they're, they're basically homeless people at this point who need help. Um, and they've, uh, they've come into the church there um, that, that uh, Pastor Max is in charge of that we support through Anchored in Truth. And I mentioned to you the, uh, the mission's designated offering will go to help, help these folks. But I, I just want to mention, I want us to remember as we, we think on these things, we, we pray for these people that 
that God has ordained that these people would come under the care of Pastor Max uh, and his church. They will experience the love of Christ through the love of Christ's church. They will be taught of Christ through the preaching and teaching of his word. And there's a certain amount of blessing in that. Would you pray with me this morning for these different pastors and churches? Father God in heaven, we pray this morning for your will to be done in the work of Pastor Millard and the work being done there in Brazil. We do lift up um, all the specific requests uh, and the needs of those people. You know the, the needs there, and, and we do trust you to care for them and to glorify your name and grow your church in that place in Brazil. Father, we also uh, earnestly uh, pray for the families that have fled their homes in Ukraine and are looking to Pastor My, uh, Max and his church for help. God, we pray for provision of their needs, spiritually and physically. We thank you that uh, we can be blessed by giving out of our abundance to help uh, the church in Poland care for these people who need it. Father, this morning as we look to our, our time of service, our time of worship and, and prayer and, and, and preaching and teaching, I pray for myself this morning. I pray for your people that can hear me. Father, we pray that you would deal bountifully with your servants, that we may live and keep your word. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. We are sojourners on this earth. Hide not your commandments from us. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Isaac, for that update. Lots to pray for in the coming weeks. Let's continue singing and let's turn our hymn books. Uh, stand and turn in our hymn books to number 283. 283, we'll see redeemed. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed through his infinite mercy, his child, and forever I am. Number 
is my Redeemer. He is the down payment of our inheritance to the praise of his glory. church. Today's Bible reading is Psalm 105, which can be found in your pew Bibles on page 503. John MacArthur has said of this, just as Psalms 103 and 104 were matched pairs, so are Psalms 105 and 106 as they look back at Israel's history from God's perspective and from Israel's vantage, respectively. The psalm possibly originated by command of David to Asaph on the occasion when the Ark of the Covenant was first brought to Jerusalem. Psalm 105, verses 1 through 15, 
repeats 1 Chronicles 16, 8 through 22. And I might comment that this is assuming that the song in 1 Chronicles 16 was written first and then that Psalm 105 was written afterwards, but the reverse could be the case as well because uh, the song in 1 Chronicles 16 also contains portions of two other psalms. Uh, Psalm 96, there are 11 verses in common there, and Psalm 106, there are two verses that are in common there. So it's possible that when the ark was brought to Jerusalem, that the song that was sung on that occasion was put together from these three songs. But we, we can't say that for certain at this point. <clears throat> and John MacArthur outlines it as follows. Uh, first, rejoicing in God's works for Israel, verses 1 through 3. Remembering God's works for Israel, verses 4 to 6. And then recounting the work of God for Israel, the bulk of the psalm, verses 7 to 45. The first point under that. Uh, from Abraham to Joseph, verses 7 to 25, and then from Moses to Joshua, verses 105, excuse me, verses 26 to 45. Let us then hear the word of the Lord. O oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, to you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. When they were few in number, of little account, and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters, his neck was put in a collar of iron. Until what he had said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him, the ruler of the people set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure, and to teach his elders wisdom. Then Israel came to Egypt, Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. And the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. He sent Moses his servant and Aaron whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them and miracles in the land of Ham. 
He sent darkness and made the land dark. They did not rebel against his words. He turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. Their lands swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke, and there came swarms of flies and gnats throughout their country. He gave them hail for rain and fiery lightning bolts through their land. He struck down their vines and fig trees and shattered the trees of their country. He spoke, and the locusts came, young locusts without number, which devoured all the vegetation in their land and ate up the fruit of their ground. He struck down all the firstborn in their land, the first fruits of all their strength. Then he brought out Israel with silver and gold, and there was none among his tribes who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for dread of them had fallen upon it. He spread a cloud for a covering and a f fire to give light by night. They asked, and he brought quail and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock, and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river, for he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing, and he gave them the lands of the nations, and they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil, that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. Now let us look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you that we can call upon you in the name of Jesus. It is your special mercy to give your Son and with him all things, the highly favored objects of your everlasting love. From all eternity, you planned, ordered, willed, appointed, and prepared the great salvation of the gospel. You chose Christ as the head and we in the church as the body of this amazing work of redemption. You've carried out all the great designs. You strengthened and complete everything in our final salvation, in grace here and glory hereafter. Blessed, holy, and compassionate Lord God, for the sake of Jesus, fulfill this promise daily in our souls. Bear us up, carry us through, and strengthen us in Christ that we may walk in his name until you bring us in to see his face in your eternal home and we dwell under the light of his countenance forever. Thank you that we can meet here freely in a nation at peace. Grant your peace and comfort to those Christians in the Ukraine suffering from the ravages of war, which we pray would soon come to an end. Continue with us now. Be exalted in the preaching of the word. Sanctify us in the truth and enable us to be doers of your word and not hearers only. All this we ask in the name and for the sake of your son, Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen.
leading us to praise the Lord. It reminds me of Psalm 50. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. You have that kind of a loop, lute and harp there. We'll have to work on the trumpet. This is out there. We'll work on that. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Hmm. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud crashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. So praise the Lord and thank you for leading us in praise. I want to lead you into worship of Christ in his word from John chapter 21. John chapter 21. And we'll be looking at verse 15 and read through, I think we'll get down to verse 19 and I'll see what we can cover in this section of this narrative. There's a key phrase here and a familiar one where Jesus asks Peter simply, do you love me? I'm reminded of a hymn written in 1855 by Frederick Whitfield. Perhaps you've heard it. There is a name I love to hear. I love to sing its worth. It sounds like music in my ear, the sweetest name on earth. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Because he first loved me. Do you love Jesus? This is a critical question and your answer is vital. Jesus asked this very question to, not to an unbeliever, but to his own disciple, Peter. This is a familiar exchange. Jesus asks Peter this question. Three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And in his response, he essentially says, I love you. I love you. I love you. This repetition of this question should cause us to consider the seriousness of it. It might be easy to get caught up in religious cliché like the bumper sticker that says, honk if you love Jesus. Now, I suppose it's okay to honk. That's fine. But there's a gravity, really, to that question. It isn't a superficial question. It, it isn't really a superstitious or, and question or, or a frivolous question. It really demands a careful, introspective thought. And I think that's why Jesus addresses it to Peter as it will unfold for us here, to, to really consider it, to really think about it. In fact, he hammers him with this three times, doesn't he? Think of the scripture like a mirror. You want to see yourself. Take the time to examine your own heart with the very words of Christ. Let's look in this text and consider this thought, and don't let it lightly leave your mind. Do you love Jesus? 
chapter 21 and verse 15. Let's read this section of this narrative. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. When you're old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said, follow me. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that you will give us insight into the word that you have carefully recorded through your servant John for us today. An eyewitness account of a critical question asked of your disciples. I pray we will hear and heed the words of Christ even this day. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're picking up, if you haven't been with us, in this chapter 21. It closes out the Gospel of John that we've been going through. And this particular scene, this breakfast scene, after breakfast, finished, it follows this miraculous catch of fish. Jesus had instructed his disciples to go back to the place where he had originally called them, in Galilee. And, as we noted last time, these conditions that occurred were essentially the same, very similar. He's, he's re-emphasizing now, at this final hour, what he had called them to. He had given them a stewardship of the gospel to preach it to the ends of the earth. In this narrative, Peter is a primary focus, other than Christ, of course, but the, the disciple that's in primary focus. He's waiting for Jesus to appear in Galilee as Jesus commanded the disciples. But while he's waiting there, and some people think perhaps he's walking away from his calling, I, I don't necessarily see that. I see it more occupying his time with what he would normally do, and that is fish. He was a fisherman after all, and he invited some others to come and follow him, and they did. That fishing expedition was an absolute failure. They caught nothing. 
I think Jesus was reminding him of many things. The least, for certainly, was that they could do absolutely nothing apart from Jesus Christ. Even an occupation which he was very experienced and very successful in. There is a distinction, as we mentioned previously as well, between your, I like to think of it this way, your occupation and your vocation. Your occupation is what fills your day, what you have to do, your various responsibilities. All of us have various responsibilities to do. But if you're a Christian, if you're a disciple, if you're a follower of Christ, you have one calling, a vocation. And Peter does here. Jesus uses this analogy of fishing. And in the first time when he called them, and even in this event here at the very close, it is Jesus who commands the fish to get into the net. He wants them to be reminded that, yes, they're fishermen, but ultimately they are fishers of men. That's their calling. And it's important and paramount, something we could certainly learn and apply, is whatever our occupation is, beloved, we all have a calling. That is to glorify God, to proclaim his gospel to the ends of the earth and live in such a way in which that is characteristic of our life. Paul would put it this way to the church at Ephesus in chapter 4 where he urges the church to walk in a manner. That is, walk means to, to live, is lifestyle. It's an idiom for, for how you live. Walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul had a unique calling. So did Peter, but so did everybody in the church of Ephesus. Can I say that? So does everybody here now. If you're in Christ, you have a calling. You have a vocation. Oh, you may be occupied with all kinds of things, but ultimately you have a calling in Christ and an admonition then to walk worthy of that, whatever station in life you happen to be in at this time. All Christians have been called to follow Christ, hence we are Christians. We've been saved by his grace created unto good works in Christ Jesus. The calling that we have and isn't just salvation to be spared from judgment, but it includes sanctification in this life and service in how he has called us uniquely in the way he has chosen and ordained. This final chapter here in the Gospel of John addresses a, a major issue, particularly with Peter in mind, but he's set up really as an exemplar for all. And that is, in his case, as you remember, he really does fail to meet his calling. How is he going to ever recover from what he has done? Should he just stiffen himself up and try a little harder next time? 
Can I give you the answer? It's in our text three times. It is the love of Christ. Ultimately, it's a, it's a rooted in the heart. Obedience to the calling, obedience to Christ really is an overflow of our love for Christ, an expression of that love. And I'm not talking about a love that is sentimental, superstitious, or superfluous. It is not that kind of an emotion. It is a response that might be expressed in some emotion, but ultimately it's a supernatural expression of a changed heart where ultimately the priority is the love of Christ. May not be perfectly expressing it, but ultimately when you peel back the layers and you look in that mirror and you examine yourself and you say, yes, I love Jesus Christ because it has been, the love of Christ has been given to you. And it may take a great failure to break a grip on lesser things. As Jesus pointed out, do you love me more than these? Well, let's look at Peter, and we'll have to back up a step to make sure that we get a good running start into this instruction and admonition that Jesus gives to Peter that's applicable to all disciples. We've been through this. You remember, and most of it's fresh in your mind, but let me just refresh your mind. The state in which Peter exists at this time, around this breakfast table, with Christ right now, he has just come off an occasion in which he was misguided to a great degree in relying on his own strength and self. You remember chapter 18? Here this mob comes to arrest Jesus, one man, and they have thousands of people with swords. And what does this one do, this Peter? He yanks out his sword, and he's going to fight them all. One man, one sword. He actually even attempts to cut off a guy's head and chops off his ear, creating a problem for himself because Jesus didn't want them arrested. He had told them to go to Galilee. It was Christ who would die, and he would submit himself to this arrest as he had already taught them. Impetuous Peter, just in his own strength, engages, and of course Jesus heals the man on the spot, removing the penalty that otherwise Peter would have received. So he's protected. And remember the encounter that Jesus has with them. Jesus asks this mob of people, who are you seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, I am, and they fall down, right? Amazing, they just get back up and keep coming at him. I mean, if I could speak I am and you just fall flat on the face, wouldn't you have a little bit of fear? It just tells you how sinful the heart of man is. Oh, they're still going to arrest him in some little fetters that that would actually hold the creator of the universe. But in any case, 
He says, well, you're not seeking my disciples who are here, and Jesus protects them, and they get out of Dodge. They are allowed to go. And the texts of the Gospels tell us that they, they were happy to get out of there. They all fled because they recognized they were going to potentially suffer a gruesome death like Christ would. So they're glad to leave, and Christ protects them. They all flee. They all leave. But if you remember, as we're reading through, there's two disciples that kind of slip back in. From a distance, understandably, during this trial, in the darkness of the night, they slip back in to see what's going on. And, in fact, go ahead and look at chapter 18, verse 15, to give you a context on that. It's the dark of night, and Peter is going to deny Jesus three times. Jesus had already told Peter, by the way, that this is what he was going to do. Just for reference, chapter 13, verse 37 Peter's ready to follow the Lord. Remember, he's, he's really strong. And he says, I will lay down my life for you. Okay? I'm going to show you how courageous I am. And Jesus responds to him in verse 38 of chapter 13. He says, will you lay down your life for me? He will, ultimately, but not according to his own strength. It will be the, through the strength that Christ provides. And to demonstrate it, that, Jesus says, truly, truly, verily, verily, amen, amen, absolutely, with certainty, I say to you, before the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Jesus had already told him that. And here it is, the night of his betrayal, the night of the rest, the night of this trial, at chapter 18. Here you have that very event being fulfilled. Verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did the other disciple. The other disciple is John, right? They sneak back in to see what's going on with the trial. And since that disciple was known by the high priest, that is John, John's an eyewitness to all of this, he entered, uh, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But note here, Peter's focus, he stood outside at the door. Well, so the disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. So Peter's lagging behind a bit, but John gets him in. So now they can see what's going on. The servant girl, and this is an interesting anecdote, verse 17, she says to Peter, you're not one of those, one, you're not one of, his, of this man's disciples, are you? And notice his response, I am not. Now, this is just a servant girl holding the door. She has no authority. Th th this would have been essentially nobody. No one would have listened to her if she would have ratted him out, so to speak. Right? And his response to her is incredulous. Here they're coming back. Remember, this is the guy that cut off a man's ear. <laughs> he was going to take on the mob of a couple thousand people, however many it was. But now this one servant girl, he stands in front of her and he denies Christ. It's, it's, it's fascinating. Just about the, the heart of man. 
Well, so now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter was also with them standing and warming himself. By the way, what brings to my mind when looking at this too, it, it reminds me of Psalm 1 about the blessed man. What does he do? Well, he doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners. And so ultimately he won't sit in the seat of the scoffers. He violates all of that here. This imagery points that out. As he's standing there and warming himself, <coughs> they said to him, you're not one of those disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. So here again, a second time. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. Okay, so this guy knows. He's the relative of the guy who got his ear cut off. And I assure you, that one knew who cut his ear off. He says, didn't I see you in the garden with him? And again, Peter denies. And at once, a rooster crowed. This courageous disciple then turns into an absolute coward, doesn't he? What happened? How could we describe it? H how do you go from courageous to a coward, and really cowardice against not many opponents, people that are on the outside, people that really didn't matter a whole lot? Ultimately, I would argue it's, it's, it's why Christ is driving this same phrase, do you love me? Peter is demonstrating that he left his first love. His delight was not in Christ and his word at that moment. Christ was not first in his thoughts. He acted impulsively and improperly. Peter's at a distance physically. He's not really that close to Jesus, and the metaphor of the darkness of night rings out here as well. This idea of him warming himself by the fire, standing with these sinners, ultimately scoffing with them. I am not one of them. Th this is a major thing, and it goes back to examining your own affections for Christ. I'm reminded Jesus addressed a particular church, the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. John records that. And here is the church, Ephesus, which if you read the book of Ephesians, it's, it's a powerfully doctrinal book with great practical implications there. And both of those are absolutely important to, to have the right doctrine and the right duty. But without a real devotion, it's meaningless. And Christ tells that particular church that, that had a lot of things in order and proper, he says, you have left your first love. The response that he get, w required was repentance then. Repent, Jesus would say. 
If not, I'm going to come to you and take away your lampstand. That is the light of the, of the glory of God that is shown in the church. It is one thing to have the right doctrine. It's another thing to have the right duty. Those are important. But ultimately, but what the glue that would hold them together and the binding of our hearts to God is the very love of Christ. Leave your first love. Faithful obedience is a response of a regenerate heart. It is our love for Christ that is going to compel us to then obey him, to follow. Chapter 14 of the Gospel of John. Jesus would tie this in, love and obedience chapter 14 of 20 and verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keep them, that is, he knows the, the, the doctrine, what Christ has taught, and then, then, then he obeys it. This is the doctrine and the duty part. Who, who is that? Who is actually really doing it? Not in a hypocritical way, the way the Pharisees did, but truly from the heart as an expression of a generate, regenerate heart. Notice here, verse 21 of chapter 14, he it is who does what? Who loves me? So there's the question. Do you love Christ? Not do you know the right theology. That's good. Not that you're doing the right things that people can see. That's good. How about the heart? Do you really, truly love Christ? It's a matter of the heart. And Christ will say about this person, who is bound to God through the love of Christ, he says, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him, that is, make himself known. Do you love Christ? An example of someone who knew the commandments and and followed them and obeyed them, and then is brought up in verse 22. We know who that is. That's Judas. J Judas wants to know, well, how is that going to happen? It happens through the supernatural work of his grace in your heart. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, and how can you examine it? Well, you'll, from the heart, want to keep his word. And the Father will love him. And then we will come to him and make our home with him. The idea is a true fellowship with God. This is the problem with sin. This is the problem with denying Christ. This is the problem with disobedience. You know what? It, for the believer, it gets you out of communion and fellowship with him. And you long for that fellowship. And that desire for fellowship brings about a confessing and repenting of our sin and recognizing that he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It doesn't mean you're going to act perfectly in all you do. Of course you're not. None of us do. There is only one, and that would be Christ. But it is the love of Christ poured out into our hearts that causes us to express us to want to have fellowship with God and fellowship with God's people. 
Warren Wiersbe put it this way, it is only as we love Christ fervently that we can serve him faithfully. Jesus goes here to the heart of the matter. It is about a love for Christ. It is his love for Christ that will be the basis then of his calling, his ministry, in his particular case, if we get to it, to tend to Christ's sheep, ultimately to serve and sacrifice and glorify God in his life. A passage to write down and to remember, I've mentioned it, I don't know, a few weeks ago. I just love the phraseology of it because it captures this idea about the divine work of God's love in the heart of the believer from, I'll just read a a selection of it, Romans 5, 5. Our hope in Christ, which doesn't put us to shame, why not? It's because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is why you look in the mirror and ask, and answer this question that Jesus asked, do you love me? Is there something genuine that has been poured out into your heart supernaturally by the Holy Spirit, right, that that, that has been given to you? It is that love, as Paul would tell the church at Corinth, that will control you, constrain you, admonish you. It is a regenerate heart that has the love of Christ poured out out into it. That's Peter's circumstance. He is in a state, really, of of rebellion. He has genuinely received the love of Christ in his heart, but in this case, he denies Christ three times. He is in a rebellious state, if you will, and it needs to be dealt with. And perhaps Peter himself is struggling Am I really in Christ? Am I really a follower and disciple of Christ? Well, the beginning of it is a call to repentance and faith. And that's what Jesus is doing. To our text, verse 15. When they had finished breakfast... Then Jesus says to Simon Peter, do you love me more than these? In verse 15. Then a second time, do you love me? And of course he responds, yes, I love you. And then he says this third time in verse 17, do you love me? Jesus is asking three times. Peter is responding each time with the same yes, I love you, and he adds, you know, you know it, I love you. Now, most of us are probably, if you've been to church for any length of time or heard sermons preached, you understand this is a play on words that's not as readily uh, apparent in English. The, the term love. In the Greek language, the language in which this was originally recorded, there are multiple terms for love. We, we don't have that many, but they did. And here in this text, what you're going to find is two familiar words, agapao, 
and phileo. <coughs> Jesus says, do you love me? The first two times, agapao. Peter responds all three times with phileo. The third time when he says it, Jesus says, well, do you phileo me? And he responds, you know, I do. Now, these two words, agapao and phileo, are essentially synonyms. So we can't push it too far to make too strong of a distinction in what's going on. But ultimately, context determines meaning. And I know there's a lot of scholars right now who would look at this text and say, well, there's nothing distinct about these two. This is just stylistic, you know, how we would write something and we would use synonyms to keep the same word from repeating and repeating. We don't have the synonyms here in English. That's why it says love, love, love. I don't actually think that's what's going on because ultimately it is, it is the usage of the words and it seems to be oftentimes when Jesus does uh, teach, he teaches in, in a w way in which wordplay, uh, if you read through the Gospel of John as we've been through, is demonstrated quite a bit. The, the word here, ag agabajo, it, it does mean love, but it is often used, most often used, remember usage determines meaning, in a way that um, demonstrates a high regard or the highest regard, you might think. Or another way to think about it is sacrificial love. For example, in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So, Agapao is used right there to demonstrate a love of sacrifice, a love of high regard for someone else. That's the idea. In the command to Christians, they're commanded, John 15 and verse 12, just prior to that, that you would love one another as I have loved you. So the highest respect and regard is how Christ loves, and he then commands his disciples to do the same. A sacrificial love, a high regard. The second word that we're using here, phileo, we get the word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Phileo is a love that is primarily used to express love of a in a, in a relationship, if you will, an association. And hence, you have the city of brotherly love or familial love or brotherly love. That's the idea. These definitions overlap. I understand that. And that's what some scholars are saying. However, how it goes in the interplay here in the conversation back and forth, I think Jesus is demonstrating something very profound here by calling him to what he has commanded him, and that is the absolute highest regard for Christ, that is your love, which then will be, will be expressed in your highest regard for your fellow believer. If you notice verse 17, when Jesus does change the word to phileo instead of agapao, Peter's response is grief, Right? Verse 17, he, he's grieved to hear that. 
Why? Because he says to him the third time here, do you love me? It's not just that he said it again and again, but this time he says it in a different word and a different way. I think this brings about this grief, not necessarily the repeating of it, but doing it in a different way. Do you even love me in an association love? I think in context, if you read it, um, Christ is calling him to the highest regard, the highest commitment, as he does all disciples. Peter, he's coming off of this denial, which he probably has some own, his own doubt about his courages and his courage and his conviction. Didn't have it prior, but now that he knows what he's done, he, he won't express it in the highest regard. Peter is grieved, he's ashamed. This threefold questioning by Christ and precisely how he does it in this wordplay is like a knife wound. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It's piercing to the division of his soul and his spirit, even to the joints and marrow. It's discerning the thoughts and intents of his own heart. He's ripped wide open. Peter is confronted by the very words of Christ cutting at his own self-sufficiency. Do you even have a love, a familial love with Christ? Jesus is asking Peter, is, does he truly love him? Beloved, this is the command that we are given. Jesus would teach his disciples based on the Old Testament as well that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind and all your strength. That you should do what? That you should love God. And this is the question. Do you love? Not that you like God. Do you like things about him? But is there a genuine expression of your heart where you love God? Oh, we're, we're never going to fulfill that level of perfection in all of it. To love him with every ounce of our being. But that is the desire of our heart which then transposes into how we might behave. The desire of our heart is to, is to love God with all our might, all our strength, all our soul, which will enable us to fulfill the second command, which is important, but overflows from that, that you will love your neighbor as yourself. Peter's denial here is a matter of his heart. His response with phileo, I think, is an expression that he knows that he loves Jesus, but he certainly loves him less than Jesus deserves. I think it is an expression here, and particularly as he talks about his grief, which I'll press on in a minute, but of, of his humility in recognizing his, his failure. 
But yet, even in that, a recognition of, well, I don't know if I do it in perfection, but yes, I love Christ. And in fact, notice here in the text when it talks about this response that he has here, each time he ties it into the idea of the omniscience or the all-knowing, if you will, of Jesus Christ since he's God. In verse 15, when Jesus asks, do you love? He says, you know it. Verse 16, you know. And then verse 17, by this time, he is really grieved for various reasons. And then his response here is, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. This is an expression of a heart. A man after God's own heart. Who his expression is, I I do love you. I'm putting my trust in you and you know it. He's banking on the knowledge of God in Christ Jesus. That this is true and genuine. It isn't something he worked up. Beloved, know this too, and Peter recognized this. I think it's helpful for us too. For those that have the love of God poured out in their heart, even in the times of failure, that is not going to separate you from Christ. In fact, it is that very thing that is going to bring you back. If you don't come back, it demonstrates that this isn't poured out in your heart because you can't help. But do it. This is the affections of a heart, of even of a disobedient Peter. Paul would set that straight theologically. You can look it up later in great detail in Ro- at the end of Romans 8. You remember it? Who, who's going to bring any charge against God's elect? Who's going to bring a charge against Peter who denies the Lord on the night he was crucified three times? Who's going to do that? It's God who justifies. Who's going to condemn? Christ Jesus died, and he does right here in John. He's also raised and is at the right hand of God, and it is Christ who is interceding for us. So who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? He knows who his own is. So tribulation, distress, or persecution, or famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. How? Through him who loved us. Do you love Christ? Neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height or depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus the Lord. Do you know that kind of love? Do you love Christ? Peter acknowledges that it is the love shed abroad in his heart that will keep him. And it is that love that will restore him. I'll touch on this and I'll have to finish it up probably in two weeks because I think I'm going to do something special for resurrection. Sunday, but we'll see. At this point, Peter has failed. Christ has reminded him of the core 
truth that is important. It's his love for Christ. And so now he's ready to restore him back to ministry. If you notice this interchange, he essentially tells him to his primary duty, his calling, right? his vocation, as I've used that term, is to tend to the very flock of God. That's what Peter was called to do. So in this interchange, if you notice here, as I read this through, in addition to this question that Jesus asked, do you love me? Jesus gave him a charge. Okay, you love me, do you? Then do what? Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, and feed my sheep. This first question, he says, do you love me more than these? It, it pokes somewhat at his pride, in which prior to this, he said, everybody else leaves you, I'm not. It also reminds him of his priority in calling. His calling is not to the things that are around him. Oh, he must occupy his time at doing various tasks, but ultimately his calling is to what? And, and this is to Peter specifically applicable to you in the sense whatever God has called you to do. In his case, it's to tend the flock. And he uses this phraseology of feed, tend, and, and then feed again, and, and lambs at once and sheep twice. I wouldn't make a big deal about, about this structure of it. I think the whole idea is he is saying in, th- in each occasion essentially the same thing, and that is to tend to the flock or to shepherd the very flock of God. That was the vocation in which Jesus would call, was called to do. Jesus has not set him aside now because of his failure. Instead, he's going to use that very failure, watch this, to accomplish what he has called him to do. This isn't an excuse for failure. It is an excuse for sin or denial. It's just that God will use that, even the failure, to shape his life and shape the lives of others. You can learn a lot by somebody else's experiences. And you can learn a lot by your own. I choose mostly vicarious experiences of somebody else. But nevertheless, he went through this. If, if you remember, when Jesus tells Peter about this um, denial that he will do, Jesus tells Peter in Luke twenty-two thirty-two is a text for that. He says, I prayed for you. He's interceding that your faith wouldn't fail. He isn't going to fail fatally, right? Because Christ is always praying for him. The love of Christ is in his heart. He's called him to examine, to see it. He sees it. It's still there. He says, but when you, you will deny, and when you have, he says, when you have turned again, that's the idea of repentance. That's what turn again means. Turn is to change direction or repent, if you will. When you have repented, strengthen your brothers. 
because now he can teach them something from his own experience. It will shape him as well. He's going to be stronger than in, in his faith because of the resiliency provided by the very grace of Jesus Christ. He will then lead in great courage and great conviction, not in his own strength as he's demonstrated it before and he's absolutely failed, but now he's going to serve in the strength in which the Lord provides. He will serve out of his love for Christ and feed the flock with his experiences in his life and strengthen the brothers. Well, I've got about another hour to go. And some of you are hungry. So I'll just land this plane here and say this. He is going to, which I, would, I do want to unpack in a greater degree, he is going to charge him with the priority of his calling. And that's the whole idea of this feeding and tending, if you will, that's mentioned here. There are, there are three main priorities in his calling. It concerns the flock of God, God's people, He's to tend to them, if you will, provide some sort of leading, if you will, feeding them, and certainly guarding them. No wonder the analogy of the sheep and the shepherd works so well. Jesus will restore him to that, and he will then be an example to the flock. Example, even in his failure to say, you know, what you do when you fail, you run back to Christ. You don't cover it up. You don't push it aside and pretend it didn't happen. It's the heart of the matter that matters. So you go to Christ. And you know what Christ will do? He'll forgive you. He'll restore you. And that restoration will be a foundation for helping many others that may step off the path. It is the love of Christ that matters and the critical question today, truly, really, as you examine your own heart. You got your doctrine all straightened out? got your duty all worked out those are all good and those are all fine and I hope you continue to work those out but be sure that they are motivated by true devotion to Jesus Christ if you've examined your heart and you find out well I'm not really sure if I love him call out to Christ he will not turn you away he will keep you forever. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that the love of Christ granted to us will be sufficient in times of great success and even great failure. And may you bind our wandering hearts.
to you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Take a moment. Think on these things. I'll give you a moment privately now. If you do need to see one of the elders afterward, we're glad to be here for you and to pray and talk with you as well. But take a moment to think on these things, private reflection right now. you would grant the love of Christ in each one of our hearts. May we express it in all that we do, not generated from the flesh, but generated from the very Holy Spirit poured out into each one of our hearts. Draw those that are outside into the faith and may all confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. What hymn? You know, you're, look at her smiling at me. You know, the reason we can never coordinate a hymn, because I never know where we're going with the sermon, right? But she can figure it out at the end. What's the number? Five, five, two. My Jesus, I love. And I pray you do. Let's stand and sing that together. 552, we'll just do the first, and Jerry will come and lead us. 552. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. I will praise you with an upright heart. When I <clears throat> learn of your righteous rules, I will keep your statutes and do not utterly forsake me, O Lord. Father, we are indeed thankful for your mercies and grace to us. Father, help us to truly have a penitent heart, Lord, to come before thee <coughs> when we sin and transgress, Lord, and to then go rejoicing and be obedient 
your commandments. We ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.